On this week's edition of New York Now, new scrutiny for religious schools in New York and more news from the week. Then, New York's infrastructure needs some work, according to a recent report. We'll have details, and later, an update on New York's overdose crisis, plus a new edition of On the Bill. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. get another stand. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. An investigation from the New York Times has sparked a new debate over education policy in New York. The Times looked into a set of parochial schools run by New York's Hasidic Jewish communities in Brooklyn and the Lower Hudson Valley. Those are religious schools, and they receive some state funding in each budget cycle. And reporters found that in some of those schools, children are not being taught basic math and English and don't get a lot of science either. On one occasion, a school agreed to give state standardized tests in reading and math to more than a thousand of their students. And all of them failed, according to The Times. This was the response from New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Uh, I want a thorough investigation. I want an independent review, and that's what the city has to do. And we're going to look at that. And uh, the chancellor has made it clear uh, that we're going to make sure every child receives a quality education in the city. Here to talk about that and other news from the week is David Lombardo from the Capitol Press Room. Thank you, as always, for coming, Dave. My pleasure, Dan. So what is the governor saying about the situation that the New York Times is kind of exposed here? The governor is basically saying, me? Governor Kathy Hochul, you want me to weigh in on this? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. I don't have anything to do with education policy in New York. That's well established uh, in the domain of the, the state education department, which, to be fair, has a board of regents that's appointed by uh, the state legislature and is much more uh, separate from other state agencies that she oversees. But uh, it is unique to see her say uh, that she is really not involved with this and really hasn't taken a position on either the merits of the New York Times story or the substantial equivalency uh, regulations that the board has uh, come down with this week, whereas her Republican opponent in the uh, November elections has basically said the Board of Regents has overstepped its authority and mm -hmm. these uh, regulations that are potentially going to non-public schools, including Hasidic yeshivas, uh, are, are going too far. So it's always interesting to me when our electeds tell us that they don't have power over something that they very clearly have power over. In this case, I mean, the governor could propose a bill. The yes. legislature could propose a bill. They could pass there legislation. There are bills. Yes. There, there are bills that are kicking around right now that have to do with strengthening the laws that are already on the books with regards to the substantial equivalency requirement in, in New York state law. This is a 160-year law that basically says all kids, no matter whether you're going to a public school or a non-public school, are guaranteed a right to a sound, basic education. Basically, that you emerge from your schooling experience with minimum criteria. And uh, so, yeah, the governor could champion something like that. Instead, what we're seeing is a real abdication of oversight. And that's really one of the big things that emerged from this New York Times story is that local officials in New York City and in the lower Hudson Valley, as well as state officials, have basically said, uh, I'm not going to get too involved in what's happening at these uh, Hasidic yeshivas, or these schools that's tailored, tailored to 
a sect of the Orthodox Jewish community. Uh, the best example of that is an investigation that was launched in 2015 by the de Blasio administration in New York City that we're still waiting for a conclusion to because people are, you know, find this to be a very sensitive topic and that has to do with politics and voting blocks and you know we can get into that but you know for some people this is a very controversial issue. It is and, and I can see so from the Hasidic community their argument is basically that they don't want to abide by these substantial equivalency standards. They don't want to do that because they're essentially in these schools preparing their children for the life that they are living, right. which is a more traditional life where it's more religious focused. But at the same time, people are now questioning, well, is, that, is it substantially equivalent in that way as well? So they argue, uh, in addition to that, the fact that this schooling is very specific in nature and that as a religious institution, they have the rights to, to focus on uh, th their religion and their tradition and, and the Jewish law that they want to focus on. Uh, but they also will argue, um, often without a lot of broad evidence, that kids who go through the system are emerging uh, well-schooled in math, science, and uh, English. But what the New York Times story really highlights is that there have been some sort of national standardized tests uh, back in 2019 that indicated how poorly these kids were doing, especially compared to their peers. And this reporting highlighted how there's a real gender gap, too, uh, amongst the boys and girls in the Hasidic community, with boys all demonstrating no proficiency in the math and, and reading that they were tested on in 2019. So, yeah, there's a, a real big problem. And what we hear from uh, people who have emerged from the Hasidic community and, and tried to live a life outside of it is that they don't feel prepared uh, for anything other than life within the Hasidic community. Turning to other news from the week, uh, it was actually a, a strange week for former Governor Andrew Cuomo, whose name we don't hear quite a lot in the news. Um, let's start with his complaint against the New York AG. So what is he saying here, Dave? He's, well, let me, let me tell you what I think he's saying. He's basically saying that Tish James, uh, the New York AG, politically put herself politically into this investigation and inserted herself. Mm -hmm. Am I missing anything? No, I think you're nailing it exactly. He's arguing that there was a basically malicious intent on her part to steer the investigation that she was responsible for in 2021. And what's funny for me is, as a reporter who was uh, watching this unfold, was that I thought she was going to steer this away from Andrew Cuomo. I think we all did at the time, because yeah. she was a Cuomo ally. Right. And he, in her defense, he assigned this investigation to her. She didn't take it wasn't, it on. It wasn't someone that she, he, wa he didn't want her to end up with it. He had already come up with, you know, his own uh, dream team panel uh, right. of investigators. But right. eventually he did authorize it, uh, her to uh, follow this. And, you know, it's a question of, did she just follow this story where it, it led her? Did she uh, lead witnesses in a certain way? Did she uh, try to uh, avoid certain witnesses? And that's all going to be very tough to prove uh, for the state ethics uh, grievance panel um, because uh, you know, there's going to have to be some sort of tra paper trail that uh, Andrew Cuomo would have to find, and that's going to be a real tough uh, thing to uncover if it even exists. And this is a complaint with the attorney grievance committee, correct? So yes. the result would potentially, let's, let's say everything went his way, the result would be that she would potentially be disbarred or disciplined or something like that. Exactly. We have about uh, less than a minute left. One of the women who has accused the governor of sexual harassment, Charlotte Bennett, has also now sued him in federal court. So uh, give me a Cliff Notes version. 
Essentially, she's arguing that uh, his conduct and the subsequent handling of her complaint uh, violated her rights, uh, her workplace rights, the sexual harassment concerns. And what's really going to be interesting here to watch is the fact that in federal court, there's a chance that leading up to all this, uh, there could be a deposition of the governor and we could learn even more uh, than we did from the attorney general's report about his conduct behind the scenes. So it's definitely something that's uh, interesting but could take some time to play out. So what else do you think could happen with this case? Well, because this is something that Pot potentially involve other women who uh, are alleged victims of the governor, there's the possibility that some of those women could jump onto this lawsuit. We're talking about uh, most notably a state trooper uh, who's had her own concerns about the governor's conduct and what that's meant for her career. Uh, there's a former uh, aide to the governor who alleges a, a groping incident in the executive mansion. And then there's the fact that this is not something that just targets Andrew Cuomo. It targets some of his top aides, uh, specifically in how they handled the complaint that Charlotte Bennett, uh, the person who brought this lawsuit, uh, how they handled her concerns when she voiced them uh, about Andrew Cuomo and his conduct, uh, basically arguing now that they didn't appropriately uh, go through and examine her concerns and basically just sort of pushed her off, basically made her change her career trajectory. So it'll be interesting to see whether they have to answer for their conduct in a more substantial way than they did in the attorney general's report. And we should mention that the governor has still denied that he has sexually harassed anyone, and his team uh, seems pretty confident in their legal strategy. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and what it looks like. Um, it's going to be a, a long haul here. David Lombardo from the Capitol Press Room, thank you as always. Thank you, Dan. All right, turning now to the state capitol with a new edition of On the Bill, where we tell you about a bill out of Albany that you might not hear about otherwise. This week, we're talking about A9715, also called the 9-11 Notice Act. It was 21 years ago now that the World Trade Center was attacked, killing thousands and shocking the nation. But in the years that followed, we started to learn about a new danger. First responders and people who lived and worked near the site of the attack were getting sick and developing cancer. And we would find out that particles that lingered in the air on the day of the attack and for months after were the cause. So Congress approved new funding in 2010 to help those affected pay for treatment. That set up the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. But to this day, a lot of people who worked in the area and might have gotten sick have not filed a claim. That brings us to the 9-11 Notice Act. It's a bill that would require businesses with 50 or more employees to tell past and present workers they could qualify for the fund. Michael Barish is a managing partner with Barish and McGarry. He's represented 9-11 victims and their families for the past two decades. 80% of the responders have enrolled in this free World Trade Center health program. Less than 10% of the civilians are enrolled in the health program. We were all breathing the same dust. We're all getting the same illnesses and cancers. We're dying from these illnesses. It doesn't matter what you did if you were exposed. That bill is currently in committee in both the state Senate and the assembly, but heading out now on New York's roads and a lot more. When we talk about infrastructure, we usually think about roads and bridges, but it's a lot more than that. New York's infrastructure ranges from roads to drinking water to things like mass transit and waste removal. And according to a recent report, those things need a lot of work. The American Society of Civil Engineers gives New York's infrastructure an overall grade of C. 
So for more on that and what we can do about it, I spoke with Assemblymember Angelo Santa Barbara, a Democrat who's actually an engineer by trade himself. Assemblyman Santa Barbara, thank you so much as always. It's uh, great to be here, and thank you for having me on your show. Of course. So we're talking about infrastructure, which is an issue that I would describe as not so sexy of an issue, but I swear every time I'm driving down the road and I hit a pothole, the immediate thing that comes to mind is why is our infrastructure so bad in New York? So we're talking about this report from the American Society of Civil Engineers about New York's infrastructure. We get a, a C this year out of A through F, the traditional grading system. Can you give us kind of like an overview? How does our infrastructure look like in New York overall? Overall, uh, we did get a, a C grade, which means, you know, it's an average grade, uh, but there's still improvements that are needed uh, across the board, anywhere from transit to ports uh, to rail, uh, roads you just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, the good news is uh, this is a periodic report, uh, and the last time it was done was in 2015, uh, which we had a C- minus as a grade. Uh, since then, I can tell you that uh, uh, there's been a significant uh, amount of investment dollars that have been put uh, through the state budget to address a lot of the infrastructure we saw, needs that we saw in 2015 from this report card. But even with that tremendous investment, even this year, we saw a tremendous amount of CHIPS money, uh, money through uh, a number of different funds to address infrastructure needs. You can see it only moves the needle uh, just slightly. Uh, yeah. So it shows that, you know, there's a couple things. We, the, the investment is needed. Uh, so the report card is good because it shows us where we need to focus these dollars. But it also shows that with, in the case of roads, we're battling a lot of, uh, you know, wear and tear because we live in the Northeast. Uh, a lot of wastewater treatment plants and, and uh, uh, water, you know, water infrastructure uh, facilities, they were built before modern engineering design. Uh, and now that we have newer materials, we have newer design, we have better materials, better, better um, products. Uh, we just got to make that investment, and these things will last a lot longer, and pavements will last a lot longer if we can get to the point where we can replace them with these newer materials. Goodness. I hope so. <laughs> so let's go through. I want to just very quickly go through what we're talking about in terms of in infrastructure, because it's not just roads and bridges. Right. We're talking roads, bridges, aviation, drinking water, rail, wastewater, solid waste, a whole bunch of stuff. So I know we have the grade of a C. Where are we doing kind of okay? Uh, there's, there was a couple of grades where, you know, solid waste seems to be a good area. Uh, I think there's 16 to 25 years of capacity left, which is good by the uh, ASE standards. Uh, you know, roads were on the lower end, and I think that that's always a challenge. Uh, but rail, you know, rail is, is another area where we need to make some investment. Drinking water, uh, the, one of the best grades, I think, was public parks, uh, mm. where we got to be. Uh, but uh, things like wastewater, transit, you know, they're on the lower end, they're in the D, ca D category. So that shows that, you know, we need to make more investments there. We need to replace a lot of these wastewater treatment plants. I know in my district, in the city of Amsterdam, there's a lot of aging infrastructures. The pipes, uh, a lot of the pipes are clay, uh, yeah. which is not a very good material to use compared to the plastics they're using now that virtually last a life for forever, uh, almost forever. I don't know if it's forever, but it lasts a very long time. Uh, but it shows that, you know, the state can put these dollars in, but really we need help from the federal government. And that's what this report card is intended to be. It's intended to be a tool uh, for us to address infrastructure concerns holistically, but also to go back, because every state does this report card, and every, every state's in a little different category, different position. They can go back to the federal government and say, hey, 
You know, a lot of these things were built by federal dollars. We're trying to keep up here, but we can only do so much. We're going to need another investment. And this shows that we need another significant investment in federal dollars. Yeah, that's a good point to bring up because transportation and infrastructure is really funded on a, an almost three-tier basis, right? We fund them locally, we fund them through state dollars, and then we fund them through federal dollars. Do you think that it, it should be like an equal share between all of them? Or do you see this more of as uh, a, a federal responsibility where they should come in and do the majority of it and we kind of clean up after? Well, I think, you know, as is with mo most things, I think it needs to be a partnership. Um, you know, the wastewater treatment plants, the infrastructure, a lot, a lot of it was built with federal dollars way back. Uh, now that we're looking to replace, update, maintain, uh, some of that should be the state's responsibility. But when we're talking about, you know, billions of dollars to upgrade treatment plants across the state, you know, billions with a B, uh, that's something where without the federal government, it's just not going to be possible uh, in, in the near future. It's going to take a very long time. So we need that that federal investment to look at this as way back when they first built them, they're kind of doing that all over again. But the good news is these newer materials, this new engineering design that they have now, uh, newer methods, these treatment plants will be expected to last a lot longer. Do you think, this is a curious thing for me because I'm always thinking about how climate change affects these conversations. We have infrastructure needs that are influenced by climate change. We need to prepare for them. How much of this investment do you think is for older infrastructure needs that are now aging out of the system versus how much is new infra infrastructure needs that we're adapting to? Or is it a mix of both, I guess? I think that, you know, that's one of the, one of the if you, once, once you go through the report, one of the things uh, that they say, they make a point to highlight, is that we do need to re reassess our infrastructure needs. You know, uh, how, you know how, how, are we, how are we using our rail? You know, the port, our ports are some of the busiest ports in the entire country, hmm. you know, and, and that has changed over time. You know, where, how, how many more roads are we going to build? How many, how many more do we we need, you know, what's the population look like? So in addition to that, you look at the changing technology, the changing infrastructure. You know, broadband is is infrastructure. Yeah. You know, and through COVID we saw we saw how important that was, you know, when you go to something like remote learning and the state parts of the state that don't have reliable uh, broadband, you just can't do it. So that is another category uh, where we need to reassess where are we investing the, these dollars. We need to reassess how we're going to spend these dollars. Uh, the card, the, the report card is is useful because not everybody's an engineer in the state legislature. I happen to be, you and are. I was involved with ASCE for for a while, uh, but not everybody is. So this makes it convenient. You know, we're all used to report cards from school. Uh, this shows, hey, you're doing good here. You're not doing so good here. So when it's time to make decisions, you know, in budget during budget time, trying to make choices, I think this would be very helpful. Uh, for people at the state capitol, for the governor to look at, for everyone to kind of come together and say, you know, everybody's going to have the same report card, can all focus on where we need to invest the most dollars. Is this an area, do you think we need new funding streams to invest this, uh, invest in these kind of things? Or do you think it's a, a matter of investing the money we have, uh, maybe in a more targeted way towards these areas that may get lower grades? Can we even, I guess, put more money into this than we are? Well, I think that, you know, the state budget, it's, it's a big budget. I yeah. think there's always choices to be made. It's a question of if we're going to make the commitment or not to uh, invest in some of the categories here. How much of a commitment are we going to make? And I'm hoping that we will see more of the state budget invested in our infrastructure. Uh, just as we saw the last few years, I, I know broadband was a big push. And we made quite a bit of progress because we did focus our efforts on broadband. We saw how important it was, especially in some of the rural areas. So you can see that when it becomes a priority, it can be done. 
Uh, so same thing with any one of these categories. When it becomes a priority for everybody at the state capitol, you can see that you can make a difference and it can be done. You know, you were a big proponent in the spring of suspending the gas tax, which obviously helped New Yorkers and people at the pump. I think it was about 16 cents off per gallon there. Um, it's going to end in December. We uh, didn't get as much revenue because we suspended that tax. Do you think that plays into this conversation in next year's state budget at all? Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, at the end of... of uh, uh, the uh, the suspension, the gas tax suspension. Uh, the idea is to reassess where everybody is. I mean, you know, economic times. You know, where where are we? Uh, how much you know? How how much relief do we need to? Uh, how much more relief do we want to provide to people? And I think we need to look at that before ending it. We need to decide, uh, you know, is this working? Is this giving people relief at the pump, helping people save money, put money back in their pockets? That was the idea be behind the gas tax suspension, and we had the federal dollars to make up for. So essentially, the state has lost nothing through that gas tax suspension. So I think that we need to take a look at it. I wanted it for a year. I think we got it for six months. Right. Uh, so hopefully we'll get to that year, Mark, because I think right now people still need, they, they need that relief. They, you know, we need to find ways to help people get through some challenging times. That's one of the ways, I think one of the most significant things we did. So you'd like to see it extended to next June? I would like to see it extended to my original proposal, which was at least a year. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, year to year, you know, the budget change so, changes so much, priorities changes so much uh, in the state. I think that uh, we need to look at it again. You know, we need to see how our, our federal dollars still coming our way. Can we continue this? Uh, maybe there's some other areas of relief that we can provide in addition to that. I don't know the answer to that right now. Obviously, next budget cycle, these most certainly, to answer your question, will be questions that are going to have to be uh, uh, have to be discussed, and decisions will have to be made. Yes, we will be talking about that quite a bit in, in the first few months of the next year. Until then, Assembly Member Angelo Santa Barbara, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And we'll get a look at the state's spending on infrastructure in January when Governor Kathy Hochul proposes her executive budget for the next fiscal year. But turning now to the state's overdose crisis. September is recovery month, and we're looking at the ways the state and others think about addiction. Reporter Alexis Young is here with more. Alexis. Thanks, Dan. Overdose deaths in New York State hit record numbers in the aftermath of the pandemic. In August, State Health Commissioner Dr. Mary Bassett announced a standing order for the overdose reversal drug naloxone or Narcan in New York State pharmacies. That's one example of how the state's focusing on harm reduction strategies to curb the opioid epidemic, something that nonprofits and advocates have championed for years. Dr. Chinazo Cunningham is the commissioner of the State Office of Addiction Services and Supports, also called OASIS. We're now um, uh, in the process of establishing a new division of harm reduction here at OASAS. But really recognizing that as more and more people are dying of overdose deaths, we have to focus on keeping people alive, period. And there's some historical context for that too. Commissioner Cunningham says the state is looking at it through the lens of the so-called war on drugs, which had disproportionate outcomes for people of color. We know there's a history of racism particularly around drug policies in this country. Um, the, the war on drugs is one very specific example of really racist policies. We have to acknowledge that. We have to say those words out loud, and we have to do everything we can to right those wrongs. And so thinking about who is at highest risk and making sure that there are equitable services and really focusing on equitable treatment outcomes is absolutely critical. Community providers think of this in a similar way. 
Project SafePoint in the Capital Region offers harm reduction services at no cost. Things like a clean syringe exchange and overdose prevention training. Candace Ellis, the executive director, said that's to meet people's needs at their own pace and on a broader spectrum. Substance use is something that many people do. Some, you know, a, a glass of wine at night or um, someone uh, smoking crack. It's a, it's a continuum as to like what that level might look like. So whether it's um, so a substance that is legal or a substance that is illegal, it's very common for someone to use a substance for a particular way. So we just normalize that here at Project C Point that use is something that we see on a regular basis and sometimes it's more problematic than others. If you or a loved one are struggling with substance, please be safe. And we'll put some resources up on our website. That's at nynow.org. Dan? Thank you so much, Alexis. All right, before we let you go, a look ahead to next week. You might have heard about efforts in recent years from workers at Amazon warehouses to unionize. And the first big win in that fight happened right here in New York this spring. That's when Amazon workers on Staten Island voted in favor of forming the first worker-led union at the company, citing unsafe working conditions at the facility. And now there's new momentum for other workers. A similar union effort has popped up in the Albany area, where workers say they want a safer workplace and better pay. Worker Heather Goodall is leading that effort. What it means for me personally is to offer protection to these employees who feel unsafe going to work. State Senator Jessica Ramos, a Democrat who chairs the Labor Committee, has also had an eye on conditions for workers at these warehouses. My message to the workers at every Amazon warehouse is to keep organizing, to keep educating themselves, to keep agitating against a bad boss, and to certainly help our efforts to call on Governor Hochul to sign the Warehouse Worker Protection Act as soon as possible. More on that next week. Until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.